This is stuff I've dreamed about for, you know, since I was young, you know, under 10 years old. And I think maybe a lot of us can relate to that of getting introduced to astronomy and the night skies at a young age. And I've always just wanted to share that with people. Chile is kind of a, that, that was a bucket list place for me um, ever, ever since watching documentaries on the Atacama Desert and, and the big telescopes that they put in at those elevations. You know, I, I want more young people to be involved in this hobby. And what I'm already starting to see from doing some, some more social media work for Plane Wave is how many younger people are doing astrophotography globally. Matt Diederich is our guest today. He works at Plane Wave, installing some of the neatest telescopes in some of the most amazing locations around the world. And he joins us today to talk about what that's like. And this is also the first Space Junk episode where we have live streamed to both the Deep Astronomy YouTube channel and the Gibson Picks Twitch channel, which is soon to become the Clear Skies Network. And please follow both channels so you can be notified of future live streams, and we will read your comments and questions to our guest while we record. So, let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. So welcome, Matt Dietrich. So tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. You're a photographer. I know this. I've, seen, I've watched some of your videos on your YouTube channel, which, by the way, if you're watching the live stream, I put the link to his channel on the, in the description box. So check out his, uh, his YouTube channel as well. Yeah, happy to hang out with you guys and apologize about last week. This is all a new experience to jump on podcasts, but I think it's incredible what you guys are doing for the community and just uh, all of us, I think, are like-minded. Yeah, definitely, man. Your work, like I, I follow your photos and every time you post this stuff, for one thing, you are traveling to some of the, the most amazing, for an astron astronomer, the dream locations of the world you know, installing literally dream telescopes, you know, and then the, the time lapses and the stuff you're doing from like Chile and all of this, it is like, it is so amazing the work that you've been doing. And I know your social media following has been growing because of that, but does it feel that way? Are you living the dream with plane wave right now? I mean, I think that's been, uh, you know, I appreciate the, the kind comments, number one, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this is stuff I've dreamed about for, you know, since I was young, you know, under 10 years old. And I think maybe a lot of us can relate to that of getting introduced to astronomy and the night skies at a young age. And I've always just wanted to share that with people and enjoying the night sky. Uh, it's like, it's like getting a fast car. You want to get one faster and faster each time you upgrade. And for astronomers, you want to get to darker and darker night skies. And, you know, some of the best skies I've seen are, you know, even in the U.S., you know, some of the national parks, but Chile is kind of a that that was a bucket list place for me um, ever ever since watching documentaries on the Atacama Desert and, right. and the big telescopes that they put in at those elevations. Um, it's just a different environment. Uh, but you know, anywhere we go on these work trips, everyone is so friendly. Um, you know, you always kind of hang out, have food. Um, you know, enjoy each other's company. Uh, talk about astronomy and and understand different cultures. I think that's one of the coolest things that um, last year really uh, was for for Plane Wave and the installations we had. We was, you know, I was on seventeen installs, I think, in the course of nine months. So it was it was a busy season. So you work for Plane Wave, correct? Okay, all right. I I did, thought your identity was primarily as a as a photographer, and I did not know that. So no, that's actually uh, secondary. That, that's that's what produces all of this is traveling for the plane wave stuff most of the time, right? That's how a lot of this goes in installing not the small stuff, but like big one meter telescopes and things like that. Yeah, last year we had a big backlog of one meter telescopes to install, so we did. Uh, we even went from one install. Um, I mean, we did two one meters within literally a week and a half, I think, you know, we went from one in New Mexico, uh, over to, I think Toronto. So we had a backlog to get installed, but, um, we installed quite a few, you know, 24 inch telescopes as well. Some of the, the smaller ones <laughs> for us, but, 
you know, in some of the 17s. Yeah. Well, that's the amazing thing about uh, plane wave, though, is that you're making telescopes that can be installed in such a short amount of time. I mean, to be able to do two telescopes in a week and a half never would have been possible on that scale without plane wave doing everything it's done over the last five years. Yeah. The, the, I mean, all said and done, the one meters, if, if we, you know, don't run into any roadblocks and our procedures have gotten really refined over the course of last year with what we need in the tool toolkit and the, the pre-site checklist that we implemented, you know, we can have those things up and running within 10 hours, uh, you know, on sky taking images, the one meters and, you know, it's a long day. And, um, you know, some of those installs turn into, you know, 14, 15, 16 hour long days, but you know, it's some of the hours blend together when we just try to get everything, you know, installed and running, but, uh, it's hard to complain. I try to pinch myself it's it's hard to sometimes do that when you do it for the living, but um, I still try to have those you know emotional connections to the night sky while you're there, whether in Chile or uh, you know here in the U.S. or anywhere else. Yeah, you know I don't uh, when when you first started with Plane Wave, I saw you many times. Um, you know everywhere we end up at a lot of the same places, but I saw you even at Plane Wave's headquarters back when it was in uh, Los Angeles, and now mm-hmm. you've got a new facility out there in Michigan. And um, I haven't been yet. I was supposed to actually be there right before all of this yeah. hit. And uh, man, the things I've heard about the, the new plane wave facility is that it's just gorgeous, just huge. Yeah, man, you'll definitely have to come out. And uh, it's a nice small town. Uh, you know, we got 50 acres of land there and have renovated all the main buildings that we need to, you know, produce optics to test optics, a separate building for developing and testing the mounts. And we have separate main building for just the the offices as well. So um, there's not a shortage of space like there was any um, you know anymore where where we were at in Los Angeles. So it's it's positive that we have a lot of land to grow on, and the community has been fully welcoming to it. So it's um, it was a natural fit. How big is the company? How big is Plane Wave as a company itself? Employees and all of that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think right now we're we're still between uh, I think fifty to sixty five employees, I believe, as of right now, and uh, we've grown steadily over the last well, actually since they started over the last you know fourteen years or so. I think they started in two thousand two thousand six. Yeah, it's been explosive growth over the last few years, though, and um, you know it's a. Uh... We do a lot of work together, and I can tell you that Plane Wave makes, I mean, some of the best telescopes in the world. I actually have a 17-inch Plane Wave in my observatory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's an interesting point you were making a second ago, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that. But, um, the you know, doing this as a career, I get this question all the time, and you just kind of touched on it, but I want to know a little deeper. Doing this as a career, I always get asked, does it diminish my desire to do this as a hobby? Like, do I still want to get out under dark skies? Do I still want to shoot? And I can say the honest answer for me is it amplifies it because I have Mm -hmm. access and it's never diminished it at all. Um, Does it do the same for you or or what's your experience been like on that? Like I said, I I try to have those, you know, pinch me moments where if we're installing a system somewhere, just to realize that, you know, I'm sitting next door to where I used to, you know, try film astrophotography through a Mead 80 millimeter, you know, when I was in ninth grade, literally that's, that's what I started right in the side lawn. Um, and just picturing what, what we do as a team now and as an industry and how quick systems can be installed. That's, that's the pinch me aha moments that definitely keep me, uh, motivated, especially during the long days. So, like you said, I mean, you're doing something that you love and you want to share it with other people. And that's, that's one thing to be able to combine it with, um, you know, the night sky photography for me, that's, that's an absolute dream and a passion. Cause I want more people to be involved in this. So what are the things that I've noticed? I mean, for sure, plane wave produces research quality instruments, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that can be used and are used by both professionals and, and amateurs alike. But I was, I'm wondering how much of your, sales or customer base are is it kind of evenly split between the amateur community and the professionals or is it mostly professionals or is there any way to i mean can you give us some insight on yeah. who's using your scopes 
Yeah. So, I mean, we've, the fact is that we've had new industries reach out to us because of the optical quality of the telescopes and the mounts that are actually holding the telescopes to track the night sky. So, I mean, we still have a lot of universities and colleges. Uh, we have the private market, which is, you know, us as imagers, astrophotographers. And then we have defense, you know, military organizations. Oh, we have, wow, yeah. you know, commercial entities that are needing to track satellites. And the mounts are capable of tracking satellites, you know, for space uh, situational awareness and laser communication. So those are the, you know, the three main markets that our equipment is uh, currently applicable for. And, you know, we'll see as, you know, this, uh, everything evolves the next decade on um, what new industries come up where PlaneWave will, you know, pivot and evolve and apply our equipment to. The uh, optical systems that you make uh that you manufacture, just like the mirrors and the, the optical mm -hmm. elements, are those made in-house or are they manufactured somewhere else to your standards? Uh, how are, or do you have your whole, or is it all like vertical integration all from the mount to the secondary? Yeah. Yeah. Everything is made in-house, you know, figured, okay. polished and, uh, you know, tested in-house full system, you know, uh, throughput. We always provide instead of just on one mirror basis. So, uh, clients know the optical quality of each system before it leaves. And we have a strict, uh, you know, QA quality assurance and QC quality control procedure for testing before anything even leaves the facility. So, I mean, we're able to keep costs low because of the vertical integration. So we're basically, uh, you know, if you want an analogy, you could say, you know, the Henry, Henry Ford model, you know, we're a serial production manufacturer and that's how we can create such high quality, it, um, you know, still an affordable price to the discerning amateur and, you know, commercial entity. And it's the whole package. It's the mount, all of it. I mean, that's the whole yeah. shebang. Okay. What is yeah. Now? yeah, that yeah. that was revolutionary when, when the L mount dropped. I mean, it changed everything because now you've got this direct drive mount that's as affordable as what the other premium mounts already were that were geared mounts. But you just eliminated the problem of backlash and periodic error with one swipe. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah. you know, let's let's talk about that. Was that uh, was that kind of the the turning point for for you? I know you you do a lot of the installs of the L mounts, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Last year we had quite a few. And, you know, I, I joined Plane Wave exactly two years ago. I would have would have been jumping on the team and we've done a lot of uh, L mounts since then. But, you know, my, my first install with them, obviously, I was I was daunted to be like, wait, how do how does this thing work? But um you know, after a few hours spending it with a software, you really see how intuitive um, the software is and the equipment because it'll just kind of blend away into the background while you're taking photos. And in my experience, that's one of the most um, beneficial things about Plane Wave, where you expect quality and the equipment just works. Yeah, you really want the software to just get out of the way. Honestly, you don't yeah. want to be thinking about the software. That's the best software, in my opinion, is the stuff you're not thinking about. Just get out of the way mm -hmm. and let me capture my data, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah, yep. So, do you mind going Absolutely. into? Do you mind going into then uh, for the people here that don't know? I'm sure there there are a lot of listeners that don't know. Um, what's the difference in direct drive and traditional geared mounts? What's the difference, and why does it matter? Yeah. So the biggest thing in for me, I mean, I've taken apart many uh, geared mounts. So geared mounts, you you have cog wheels basically moving together, just machine pieces of metal, and you're always going to play in between those actual gears, and you have to grease them. So they only can move at a certain speed, and you have play within those gears. So there's ways to kind of fix that a little bit in software, but it's still a mechanical system where you can't control some of the some of the actual uh, errors in the gear. But with direct drives, you're all you have is a a motor and magnets. So there's no gears. All you have is a bearing that basically the the axes are are um, you know sitting on the motors. So that allows the system to slew very quickly 
quietly and track objects at very high precision. And we go down to normally 0.05 to 0.15 arc second level tracking. I know that's getting into jargon, but um, all that means is if of a minute fraction of a width of a star in jitter, uh, essentially, or tracking error, I should say, not jitter. But um, you open yourself up to new applications with direct drive because of the speed the system can move and track at such as satellite tracking and uh, extremely minimal maintenance in quiet and in that the tracking accuracy right now is, uh, you know, it's unmatched compared to gear systems because we can only machine gears to a, uh, a certain tolerance. Uh, but now with just using magnetism, you can control the system very precisely. And it just means better photos. That's it. You know, better photos. <laughs> right? Those gears are dependent on mechanical friction to work. And even then, only a very small percentage of the gears around the cog are actually engaged at any one time. And so with magnetism, I mean, you have complete control and you're not dependent on that. So you can make these super fast slews and not mm -hmm. have the inside of the mount set on fire and reshape all the gears. Yeah. yeah. And so... Um, I've seen I've seen just the test demos. I don't know what your uh, posted um, slew speeds are, but I've seen when they were just testing the original ones before they were even sold. Man, these things were yeah. whipping around so fast you could reshape the optics. Like it was a problem of inertia <laughs> more than it was the ability of the yeah. mount. They were doing that at Neef a year ago. Yeah, I saw yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah. Well, can I make sure I'm understanding? I'm visualizing this right. So you've basically a direct drive drive is one that is basically built you've you've incorporated the polar axis into the motor itself right so the polar axis is the drive mm -hmm. the drive of the shaft of the motor and then is it a continuous motor that's built around that or is it a stepper motor kind of thing or am i visualizing that right the, so that it is built around the polar axis it's it's close so basically each you have to look at it um you have copper coils you have to look at it from i guess just a a cylinder a circle and you have all these magnets that are spaced on the annulus and then you have copper coils up above those so imagine taking a sandwich well i guess just a uh, an oreo cookie and opening it up and basically on one side you have copper coils on the other side you'd have magnets and just a a circular track of magnets and you put those together and, you know, we do wiring on it. So when you send electricity to the copper, you're creating a magnetic field. And essentially, so, oh. yeah. And you and have so encoders. That is kind of a stepper-ish kind of motor then, right? Because each coil and each magnet would interact in a very specific way, like a stepper motor. So I don't know if stepper motors can get down to the resolution with... So basically, we use optical encoders. And an encoder just provides... A, a feedback it's like the the um um cruise control in your car right you set it to a certain a certain speed and it's going to read sensors and it's going to say okay i see the wheels moving at this speed so i'm going to keep at this speed basically with the encoders we can say um, continue tracking at this speed and with the precision of the encoder you basically like i said so it's, it's the fraction of a width of a star so you get very pinpoint images without, um, you know, any issues from backlash or gears moving together because all you have is a bearing and a magnetic field. So it makes for a very um, high precision pointing and tracking system. You actually just got a, um, a question in the, the Twitch chat here. Um, Third Rock Astronomy is asking, um, are they absolute or relative encoders? So on the one meter system, we have absolute encoders and on all the uh, you know, smaller systems, we use incremental. And the only difference between absolute and incremental, which I'm sure you, you likely know, is if you power cycle them out, the absolute encoder is going to know where it is at even after you power cycled. But with the incremental, you have to run the quick, you know, five to 10 second homing procedure and it'll then reference itself knowing exactly where it's at. So yeah. you save yourself a lot of money. If we put uh, absolute encoders in, in the L mounts, you would jack the price up by multiple thousands. And, and it, all it does is save yourself five seconds, you know, five, it's 10 seconds during it. homing. Yeah, it's, it's not there's no it. need for it, no. you know, it, for most, for most, uh, you know, the applications. Yeah. 
And it, uh, you know, I've seen people that one of the first exposures I saw of an L-mount was one of my friends sent me an image. It was a 30-minute exposure in HA, and it just said, mm -hmm. ha, ha, ha. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. And he said, unguided. And I was like, no, yeah. no. Yep. Oh, 30-minute yeah. <laughs> yeah. unguided exposure? Yeah. That's insane. And it's not like he's shooting at 200 millimeters of focal length. This was with a plane wave, 12 and a half. That's a yeah. lot of focal length, you know? Yeah. But that is just insane levels of tracking. Yeah. Yeah. We did an install a couple, well, it was in Jan or January, end of January in New Mexico. And it was this cool astronomy village in, uh, in Deming, uh, New Mexico. And one guy had an L500 with a 17 and he was doing unguided, uh, you know, 20, 25 minute subs. And I was asking him, you know, how many subs are you tossing away? Cause usually I would think, you know, maybe, you know, 15%, 20% of the subs. He said last night he did, you know, a hundred subs and he threw away one. So I, oh, <laughs> it, but he's, he's equatorial. So that's, I mean, that's the way to do it with the L mounts for astrophotography is put it up on a wedge and polar line it. And our software can help adjust the polar alignment. And we did one that weekend for the buddy and the polar alignment got down to, you know, five arc seconds in each axis of, of polar alignment air. And then that is so incredible. So, yeah, I throw it's, away more subs than that guided. That. I mean, I'm throwing probably 15% of my subs away right now guided just due mm. to, I mean, granted, you know, there are 15 and 20 mile an hour gusts out there in the desert. Right yeah. Now. So yeah. the wind, the wind doesn't help anything, but, um, yeah, yeah, that they truly are incredible, man. And I think that's why they've become so popular. I mean, they're so popular as you know, like we have to have 30 on hand. I think we have 30 L three fifties <laughs> on hand right now. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's a popular mount. Yeah, I trailered one home from the shop uh, on Friday, so I, I got it out last night to do a little bit of imaging and uh, with a C, C, uh, CDK-14. Um, clouds rolled in, but I still did a mosaic of the moon <laughs> with the high clouds. It looked kind of cool, but kind of kind of overkill to just roll out and do lunar shots. But yeah, it was it was too cloudy overkill. to do a pointing what? model. But my look yeah. at my moon scope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's. It, it's pretty fun. I, I would love to take that. My goal is to try to get something like that to take to some national parks and engage with more people and do some night sky, uh, you know, star parties like like I used to do at Mount Rainier back five years ago. Because, man, we tell you what, how many people love seeing, uh, you know, seeing the night sky for the first time. We had we had 90 year old, um, you know, people there at Mount Rainier, you know, that uh, star party and things that never, never looked through a telescope, never saw a planet through a scope. It's uh and then all the way down to the kids, you know, doing astrophotography and the kids would put the phones, um, take the background of the images that we did and slap it on their phones and they would be showing their parents. It was uh, it was just such a cool way to engage with people. And of course, we all can relate to that. Um, that kind of feeling of the night sky. And that's, that's your cool passion, started, right? So you looking through a plane, plane wave. Oh, yeah, exactly. So you're going to go out to the park and not know that you're going to get a view tonight. And then there's somebody there with an L mount and a plane wave 14 yeah, yeah. to show you the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Just sitting there in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. As long as they help me roll it back in the trailer because I had to get help. But I, I got to uh, find a way to put like a winch, get like a winch on the trailer or something like that. Yeah. So I could help like roll the rolling pier back inside. So it's, it's so funny. it was a good learning curve last night to see if it's going to be practical for some, you know, some maybe trips like that for, for, um, you know, outreach and education. Well, it's not practicality you should be after. It's just Epic. Epic's the word you're going for, man. And it's definitely that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It, yeah. It makes uh, a hell of a first impression. Oh, yeah. uh, it's amazing. And that's the side of it that you're passionate about, man. And I really, I really appreciate that about you and that you bring that to plane wave is the desire to share this. It makes it more than a business because you have huge, not only outreach potential, but you put a ton of effort into it. You're sharing this with a lot of people. Um, is that kind of what keeps you here? Is that kind of what, what keeps you in the hobby is, is the sharing side of it? I think so. I think all of us can definitely relate to that. Um, you know, I, I want more young people to be involved in this hobby. And what I'm already starting to see from doing some some more social media work for Plane Wave is how many younger people are doing astrophotography globally. Uh, you know, 15 year olds in New Zealand. I mean, it's like for crying out loud, I, you know, and even younger. And the work that they're doing is, I was like, dude, you need to like submit that to APOD and, you know, magazines that the, the, Getting folks out there, that's one thing that I love about Plane Wave, that they're very open to ideas. Uh, and I think that's what made them successful is that they 
they're a good company. And, and I came from oil and gas. I mean, my background is, is geology and um, in education as well. And, you know, my idea was obviously to, to help grow plane wave on the installation front, but also on, um, you know, the education and outreach side. And I think that's finally actually going to happen. That's kind of the way, um, you know, things are, are changing, um, you know, once travel kind of opens back up, you know, yeah, well, I you know I called Rick. That's probably he probably called you after that call. Um, I called Rick. Rick's the CEO of Plane Wave, and I was talking to him about it. And I really like that it's exactly what you're saying. Rick is so open to all of this. Like, if it's getting astronomy yeah. in front of people, he's just like, "Yep, let's do it. Let's partner. Let's get yeah. after it. Let's let's show people." And so, yeah, I know you have. Uh, I know you have the support there, and it looks like. I mean, if you've got the access to the yeah. equipment, you've got the following, you've got the know-how, then. All, all that separates, you know, you from the goal of showing this to, you know, a huge number of people is just time, mm-hmm. right? It's just yeah. time from yeah. A to B. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that's just bucket list stuff for me. You know, I, I've wanted to drive, you know, and I drove to Mount Rainier to do that um, astronomy ranger position back five years ago, about to the day I left in, well, mid-May. But, you know, I spent, you know, two weeks driving, hitting up national parks to check out and photograph the <laughs> nice sky. You know, what was it? The first stop was uh, Badlands, uh, Badlands National Park. And that was the first time I ever photographed airglow, you know, the green and the and the the reddish. Uh, a lot of times here in the northern hemisphere, you get the green, green airglow. But the skies are so dark. Uh, you know, we stopped at Yellowstone for a night, but it was it was cloudy there. So we hung out at Glacier for five nights or so. And we had four nights in a row of clear, good, dark skies. And, um, is Glacier yeah. up in Montana? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Northern okay. Montana. And that's some of the darkest night skies I've ever seen. I mean, you put your hand in front of your face, you can't see it. And it's kind of, kind of scary. Cause I mean, you got, well, it was May. So the Grizzlies aren't coming out of their dens just yet, but I was, you know, by myself just going around to some of those places. And I'm like, I'm going to stay kind of closer to my car than I normally would and say other national parks. But I don't want to be uh, by myself with some grizzly bear comes looking for food after coming out of winter hibernation. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't, well, yeah, I don't get that. Why not? Yeah, <laughs> but but you're right about that. I mean, these 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 mountain skies. I mean, the, the biggest downfall or the biggest negative about them, I guess, is they tend to be they tend to have a lot of cloud cover and a lot of moisture. But boy, when you're yeah. up at altitude, um, I think it, it would it would put anything in, it would be better than anything you'd see in a desert, for example, which you know, you can get more consistent, uh, mm-hmm. awesome skies from, but man, yeah. those mountain skies, when they're clear like that and you're up at yeah. 5,000 or 8,000 yeah. feet, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. No. And that's, that is one of the coolest things. I, I do appreciate plane wave for just being open to ideas, especially from, you know, younger employees kind of thing, because it's so easy to dismiss, you know, ideas and then you miss out on, on opportunities and engaging with, um, you know, other sectors or, or business ideas that, you know, you might not have thought about. And, um, you know, I didn't think about it as a job switch. I mean, to me, this was finally getting a career and, you know, I've been (laughs) working for a while, but it's the first time I've said, I finally have a career that is, um, you know, something that I love and just want to share with, um, you know, like, like you guys, I mean, you're getting this, the the word of mouth out and engaging with people. And, uh, I think that's super cool. You know, we need more people to promote. That's true wealth, in my opinion. That makes you a rich man, right? To have that ability, or to be able to say that about your life and your career, you know, that's mm. just there's just nothing like it. And I would hope, I would wish that on more people, just because it is such a an invigorating thing to have a, mm-hmm. a career that you look forward to and yeah, and, uh, enjoy doing every single day. Is yeah. plane is plane wave a young company? Are you guys full of harumphers? They well, let's see. Oh, I mean, we got a good mix. We definitely do. That's a, that's an awesome term. I like that. <laughs> it, it's definitely a good mix, right? But like I said, they they listen, and I say I'm young, but I mean I'm going to be 29 on Sunday. But I mean, that's they joke they joke about not uh, the one engineer's joke is like, oh yeah, they told me I wouldn't get to, I wouldn't be respected until I turn 30. That's what they told him, dying, you know, laughing about that. It's like, okay, <laughs> once you're 30, then you're a competent you know engineer and that sort of thing, or you would be respected as an engineer. So, but, um, it's proofs in the pudding, man. If you, if you work hard and and that's all I did last year was like 200 and some days on the road for plane wave installing, doing, uh, marketing and conferences. And, um, that year was like a blink of an eye and 
it's uh, we learned a lot, and being in a field teaches you, you know, how to work through the equipment and resolve issues. I think that's just the life skills of astrophotography. You know, give someone a telescope and a camera, and and they'll they'll be able to figure out, um, you know, art, science, you know, troubleshooting, oh, yeah, all kind of cool engineering. You know, access to everything. Yeah, yeah. the 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 proof is in the doing for sure because you you see this in these young astrophotographers coming out everywhere that the work is just absolutely stunning and expert yeah. level and yeah. uh, even even in the science level as far as getting respect goes. I mean, there's a guy, uh, a friend of mine, Mike. He's called Asteroid Hunters on uh, on Twitch, mm. and he looks for asteroids and he's got somebody working with him, a, a, a younger adult. I I, I don't want to mention his name just in case, but yeah. Anyway, he's he's uh, he he can not only manipulate the data, but he can find asteroids that have been lost in the data and go back and find them again uh, so that they can be observed uh, wow. from professional data sets. And this kid hasn't even started college yet. And so these are, you know, these are people who, yes, have massive amounts of respect, yeah. even though they, yeah. you know, they've just started. So I yeah. couldn't, I couldn't echo that sentiment more. Yeah. It's important. And it's amazing to me. And I don't know if that's because of technology being, uh, you know, enabling all of this or, or what, mm-hmm. but it seems to me like the young, the younger generation is really able to take this stuff and go with it. Yeah. You, so you said 200 days on the road last year, you were in a lot of different countries. Did, did you keep track how many countries you went to last year? Yeah. And I did, um, even, I mean, this is touching upon that, that trip five years ago, my, when I finished grad school for geology, my, my advisor was like, you know, it, you should, you should journal, you know, cause she knew I was going to go do this astronomy stuff. So, so she said, you know, you should journal that and pass it on, you know, to your grandkids or whatever. And I was like, well, why that my grandpa actually did that when he was in the Navy and stuff. And so I, I keep that same journal and I'll make just a, a blog or whatever, just something like, okay, I'm in, you know, we, we were in Thailand in fall. We were in Chile a few times, uh, a lot in the U S um, where else Australia a few times. So, you know, I just make a note of it. Cause I think it'd just be cool to, you know, if I have kids one day, pass it on to them to be like, Oh, Hey, you know, I remember when we did this and inspire them hopefully to, to travel and experience new cultures. And, you know, we had a few, a few trips in Europe, um, you know, France and Switzerland and in Germany. So, yeah, I think the storytelling stuff, man, that's that's one of the coolest things that that I guess I've enjoyed about about it in the people. Right. Because um, I miss, you know, even just sitting at home, I, I miss being on the install trips, working with the people and and working with them to troubleshoot and find solutions. And, you know, you build these super quick relationships that last and you, you, you hang out with them, you text them and stay in touch. So that's, you know, it, it was one of the busiest years of my life. But, man, I. You know, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. That's awesome. So you've um, you've been spending a lot of time on mountains, man. I can tell. Is that that where the beard came from? Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna grow it out even more, and we'll see. My my old roommate, his is like down here after he got married. He literally looks just like me, but he's got a West Virginia accent from Southern West Virginia, and uh, he he shaved it oh. off before he got married in in October, but. Um, it's been going since and it's it is literally down. It's it's that's, beautiful. So it's gotta be a twelve yeah. twelve, maybe fifteen pound beard. Are you having any uh <laughs> you feel like a counterweight, yeah. you know? I think Justin doesn't has beard envy. Yeah. I just <laughs> man, it's just half the people we get on here oil, have man. these massive, massive beard oil. beards, yeah. It's we should important. just post yeah. a picture yeah. of all of the guests of Space Junk Podcast that have had beards of like, you know, yeah. ten pounds yeah. or heavier. That's a thing. Yeah, I think yeah. Hans is still the guy to beat, but yeah, he's, he has, that's some serious beard. Yeah, there I was trying to figure out names because I was, I was figuring out what I should do for uh, on the side, like I do all the photography and stuff, and you know, I finally incorporated as an LLC as a bucket list thing finally, and but I was like, you know what, I, should I just change it, and not just do Matt Dieter photography, but right now it is just that but i was joking it's like should i do like bearded astro or i don't know something but i couldn't figure out a catchy <laughs> enough astro. name because it's like well what if i shave it or what if it like yeah yeah if i get rid of it one day then it's like well that's kind of odd but i was i was figuring out all of these lists of like business names i should do but i couldn't 
you know, I was spending too much time on that and on actually just figuring out a business model, right? Like I, <laughs> I, I just want to, you know, work on that and not just a star name. beard, man. It needs to be yeah. star beard, right? Instead of black beard and, the and glitter all beards. pirates. Yeah. Glitter, yeah oh man. Derail. Oh, that's yeah. hilarious. It always happens. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Derail. So, what you said you went to you went to grad school for uh geology yeah geology and planetary sciences is what it was back then so okay finished that five go, years ago did you go all the way through the phd program or how far did you go just with? did the masters um i i realized you know i thought it'd be cool to teach maybe one day but i found out that you know it's the passion anytime i was doing all those programs i was always still figuring and dreaming something night sky related and that's why I was like, you know, masters is going to be enough for what I want to do. And obviously, you know, I'm not working on geology right now anymore anyway. So, but, uh, yeah, I give credit to people that push through for PhDs cause that's, that's a long haul. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You must be following the, uh, the, the Rover stuff on Mars and all the, all the geologic news that comes out of Mars pretty closely then. That stuff's crazy. It's, it's, it's amazing all the chemistry and, and geology that they work on, but it's, it's cool. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff we could do on, uh, you know, you reference stuff like that on planet Earth to, you know, you know, like gypsum is like a mineral. And we only know it forms when it's um, in contact with water. And they found that on Mars. So, you know, you can make, you know, deduce that basically Mars had water, obviously. And there's way other, you know, the fact that you have all the sedimentary rocks as it is, that's we only know that that forms in water. So there's cool terrestrial analogs, as they call them you know, for planetary science that you can look at, you know, it's pretty cool. Can I just ask you about your, the install in Chile, because you have a beautiful video on your channel uh, about how that install went. And Mm -hmm. it brought back a lot of memories because I, I spent some time on that same mountain, the Cerro Tololo, Mm -hmm. uh, where they have this complex of observatories. Yeah. uh, The biggest of which is the four meter Blanco that's in the big dome that you see in your video. And uh, I was just curious about what they're going to do. This was in one of the auxiliary buildings that's around the rim of the of the hilltop. Yeah. And what what did they what is their plan for? Is it going to be a general purpose telescope or do they have any specific surveys in mind with that telescope? Uh, What's the plan for? it? Yeah. So that's that's one of our clients. Uh, That's actually the U.S. Navy. And oh, is they're that doing a that's a naval, okay. yeah, and that's they're doing uh, what they called celestial reference framing. So you know they're doing that. So basically, celestial doing reference framing, yeah. So I'd imagine it might have some. Um, they have a wide field camera on it, right? But there's you know if it's the navy, there's probably some interesting applications that I have no clue what their you know the uh, defense application might be for it, but. Um, that's that's what I know. The actual uh, celestial reference frame uh, application is is the uh, primary focus of that system right now. I celestial reference frame every day, and I don't even need a telescope for that. So I'm I know. Not quite they, sure. Well, they got a one yeah. meter to do it, so I guess they they <laughs> yeah. just show off. So they can do it better. Yeah, yeah. they can do it well, better. You know, yeah, people don't realize just how involved the military is in astronomy, uh, especially in things like space weather. The Air Force has a huge contingent working mm. at NASA Goddard where they're looking at the sun all the time. They want to know about the dangers of these storms that are coming yeah, from the sun. Sure. And, and Navy, I would imagine, are more interested in celestial reference framing. It must be navigation of some kind yeah. uh, that they're using it for. Yep, but, uh, exactly. That would make sense, I suppose. Yeah, very precise. Well, I guess that's astrometry then, right? It, you yeah, know? it would be. So they're... Although it would be from that, well, so yeah, um, I, we can speculate, yeah. but who knows what that means. Because they have big catalogs. I mean, that old telescope they used to use, I mean, they have, you know, the USNO catalog kind of thing for uh, like plate solving, right? So they have a big mm-hmm. database for that, for fingerprinting, you know, where the telescope's pointing in the night sky. Yeah, it's just that they've got Gaia now for that. And so I just wonder, mm. you, know, you know, but it's it's cool that they've got it there. And I did not know that that was a multinational Hilltop, you know, is is the the name of the organization that runs it is CTIO, which is Cerro Tololo Interagency or Inter, yeah, inter- American, inter- yeah, inter- inter- American, inter- American, yeah, Interamerican, American, yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah, Interamerican observatories, and so I guess that makes sense that there would be other countries involved. Well, yeah, cool. yeah, they have How the best long? food. <laughs> Don't <laughs> they though? Their cooks, their salmon. The, the ca- oh man, the cafeteria yeah, is. And- 
And it's so cool. Oh, and so it's, Dustin, good. it's so neat. You get to not only do you get to eat breakfast at like three in the afternoon, right? Because you you've slept all day in these really <laughs> in these really cool um apartments that uh that have the uh light shades that come down and man, it is dark in there. You yeah. go to sleep at, I don't know, six or seven in the morning and wake up again around three ish. And, you know, it's like you're it's an it, it takes like a day to get your schedule all screwed up like that. And you yeah. and it's but it's wonderful. It's really it's really great. And you're right. The food there is awesome. It's really uh, I definitely won't forget that. That's <laughs> I think we, we have to go back down there. Well, hopefully we were supposed to go in March to to just work on the system and do some more training for them. And um, but I think maybe July or August we'll go back down depending on like flights and schedules and things. So. I have to wonder in this day and age now, with the way things are going with the with the pandemic, if 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 remote observing isn't going to be more of an of a thing. I mean, mm. astronomers would go to the hilltop, but if you think about it, they didn't really have to be there other than to supervise their observations. Yeah, uh, I just wonder how much that's going to be hurt going forward. But that's you know, yeah, I guess time will tell. Do you do that, yeah. Matt? Do one. you do you do your own? Um you know, remote imaging regularly with all, with a lot of these different systems you build? So the one, I mean, the one, so Obstech, if, if for those aren't familiar with that, and I mean, I'd happy to answer any questions about that facility because we have a few that's becoming like plane wave central down there at Obstech in Chile. So basically that's just a few miles south of Saratololo. So you have the same, you know, usually one arc second level seeing, and sometimes it does dip down to 0.8 arc second level seeing. Uh, but it's a, this beautiful facility that, that has, I mean, now they're, they're over, over 50 remote systems. And, uh, we have a client that has a CDK 600 there and, uh, we'll be putting our CDK 24 and an L 600 down there as well that we'll be using, uh, you know, for doing satellite tracking and, you know, imaging and, and trying to find ways to do some marketing and things like that with it. So I, I can't wait to get that thing set up and, and up and running. So that's, that's the that's one that uh, the client lets me on whenever he's not using it. Like tonight, he said he's busy, so I'll just do some narrowband data because the moon. Yeah, that, that's incredible, man. And, and I know you have to have that. Yeah, I mean, if people are, if you're building these things and they're not going to be used every single night, that's an awesome mm-hmm. way to get some time on these big telescopes. It's just if it's yeah. not being used, I mean, same thing we do. Like we we open ours up to everyone to use, you know, yeah. but that's, it's a little bit different because that's kind of the point of the ones we're building, but... That's another thing yeah, we need to talk exactly. about. We need to, we need to get you involved in this observatory project we have going on, and uh, yeah, you know, it's a an awesome way for you to do outreach and open up the observatories to you, and even even the Twitch channel itself, man. I mean, we can make that available mm-hmm. for you to to educate people because it's a lot of mm-hmm. fun, and the whole point of it is just to let people access the universe for themselves and yeah. to train them how to use this stuff so that they can use the Texas observatories. Um, for free, you know, so it's it's really cool hangouts thing on Twitch. Yeah, yeah, I saw that you guys are doing that, and I know it just there's so many young kids you guys are reaching. I think it's just so cool, and um, you know, I guess that's one of the things of figuring out what route I kind of want to take with um, with it because you know we're we're a mid sized company, I guess, or small mid size, whatever you'd say, but um, you know, still there, I guess it ebbs and flows with how busy installs get. But now with being at home and not traveling for installs, you know, I've been pushing to do more of the marketing side and, and just engaging with people and, and helping in any way that, that I can. And, you know, case in point was, um, you know, sharing some data from from that system in Chile, um, you know, of M83, the Southern Pinwheel Galaxy. And I just said, hey, you know, message me if you want to edit the data because I want to see how other people process and learn. And, you know, it, it occupied my whole weekend <laughs> because... 50 people ended up messaging me saying, okay, yeah, let me get the data and I want to edit it. And, you know, now I got multiple new friends from Instagram on that, you know, one guy's in New Zealand, um, some cool guys in the U S here and, you know, some in Europe because they're just like, they, they appreciated just spending some time on, on, you know, some of the plane wave data and just seeing the, the equipment, um, the processing that these people are doing is amazing. Um, it's, it's a lot you can learn from, and and hang out hang out with people while you while you edit photos. Do you wanna do you wanna take some uh cu- some questions from the um from the chat, Dustin? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah there let's was do it. There, uh let's see. So, 
this is from my YouTube channel. And dude, I don't know what kind of handle you've got there, but I can't even begin to pronounce it. So I'm not going to try. <laughs> but his question is, <laughs> I mean, you should see it. It's all a bunch of vowels. I, I really don't know how to say it. So um, he, he's asking, what are the deepest objects you have personally photographed? I mean, it's probably going to be, it's going to be a galaxy, but I think M83, um, I mean, that's pretty deep. I forget how many millions of light years away it is offhand, but you know, it's going to be fun to get that CDK 600 up and running for the plane wave side, because then we won't be contingent upon waiting, you know, for, for a night that a client's not using it. And then we could really um, think about, you know, if we get uh, folks wanting to image something really deep, you know, take it long integration over you know many nights and just see you know very far off galaxy that's um that will be something we could do but for me i think it might only be you know m83 or something like that um you know x amount of millions of light years away i think but i'd have to pull it up on my instagram and see well let me ask you this then i mean i i, I understand that it depends a lot on your location and the skies and and everything else but on average do you have an idea of the magnitude limit uh of the one meter not get, let's 18 see. or 19 um, magnitude something like that so well i guess you kind of basically it just like you said depends on how many hours worth of photos that you take right or are you talking about visually because i guess well i guess under what do i mean i guess but like something on the order of a minute or two exposure can can you and you want to stack those up um yeah what would, what would be the what would be a magnitude i rough idea is it like 18 <sighs> something like that yeah, it's it's tough to tell offhand. I don't I don't have the numbers offhand. I'd have to check, but um, I was just pulling up the one galaxy. So I was I was remembering it's um, Centaurus A. That was the one I just posted the other day. Well, uh, ten to sixteen million light years away. They they believe, but that one is unbelievably bright. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. it's crazy bright, and yet it's that far away. It blows my mind. So it says it's about sixty thousand uh, light years across. <laughs> wow. It's just huge. But um, yeah, like you said, I, I don't know exactly yeah the limiting mag of the scope offhand, but it just depends on how many hours worth of data that you take. You know, what I'd have to be, calculate. What would be really fun, and the reason I asked that question is because a, a lot, you know, a plane wave would be a telescope that could do it. Uh, would certainly it would certainly be part of its chops. Is if you could somehow get some of these uh, deep fields that yeah. Hubble had taken some of the uh, uh, g galaxy clusters that Hubble had taken and maybe try and replicate uh, getting some uh, gravitationally lensed galaxies from behind. That would oh, be man. so awesome. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know yeah. if it's up to it. The one meter might be, but it might be a little too small. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we have the that. two meter in design. So we, we just need to, we're working on some clients for that system. So that, I mean, that thing is going to be about 25 feet tall compared to the 11 feet tall for the one meter it's uh it's gonna be huge but that's i want to get one and I put it down in chile because then you're taking advantage of of some great skies mm -hmm. um but yeah. with that you're talking about tossing on probably some adaptive optics to really make use of it um you know because the focal length is going to be you know over ten thousand, well over 10 meters you know over ten thousand millimeters so it's going to be a, a a big um a big system but that would collect some serious light. You don't want to roll that out and uh, take DSLR photography of the moon with it? Like you do your... <laughs> well, that I literally would need, finally, finally a motorized cart for that, I would hope. Because if I, if I struggle to actually roll out an L350 on the rolling pier, yeah, I don't even want to know. <laughs> it would be like yeah, the just, thing that they carry the space shuttle with kind of thing. Yeah, just throw that thing on a tripod and shoot it, man. Yeah. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> That'd be so cool. <laughs> oh, God. oh, what are the questions you got? Uh, I like that we can have a more interactive podcast by streaming this and we can have these questions coming in in real time. That's awesome. I agree. I yeah. yeah, I think you guys, this should be the, the new standard. I mean, you guys have done this for a while, but this... This seems natural and cool, so I, it's I like really that. yeah, I love it too, man. We get the audience involved. Well, AE Mitty on Twitch is uh, he's joking, but he's asking a question. Matt, what what company do you prefer, OPT or Plane Wave? OPT or Plane Wave? <laughs> uh, now we're now we're now we're casting jokes, I guess. Well, jeez. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, we work so closely with OPT that I mean, it, it's hard to tell. I've never worked for OPT though, so it's tough to tell if I was an employee one versus the other. But you know, well, do you as do colleagues, you have... I like both. Do you guys have ping pong tables or massage chairs or arcade machines? 
Or... Well, yeah, that's next to the <laughs> chocolate fountain in the hot tub. The uh, chocolate fountain. <laughs> Do you guys have a, the chocolate fountain? <laughs> the chocolate fountain. No. Oh, that would that would make my day if I was touring the new plane wave facility. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is the two meter and the chocolate fountain. Yeah, yeah. You get to do a double. Never take. mix the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't get any chocolate on the mirrors. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, well, I got one more. I got a serious question from Uncle Bill Druin on YouTube. He's uh, he's asking. I don't see how you get that kind of positional re- resolution. Talking about the the direct drive mounts, mm-hmm. I don't see how you can get that kind of positional resolution without gearing, unless the motor diameter unless the motor diameter is building sized. Oh, for the for the tracking accuracy and pointing yes. accuracy. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's actually in, incredibly easy. Um, but that's only because you have optical encoders. Optical encoders, you have a disc that has millions of etch marks. You can't even see it. It looks just, just like a gray bar because there's so many millions of these lines that are etched on this ring. And the, basically, this laser, this little system, the actual optical encoder, is reading all those millions of ticks. So that's the encoder tick resolution. That's how you get to the 0.05 to 0.15 arc second level tracking and it's direct drive. Um, Gear-based systems, to my knowledge, will, well, I shouldn't say they would never because I'm not an engineer to know if they ever could, but I would be very shocked if they could ever get down to that kind of tracking quality just due to machining tolerances when you machine metal. But of a gear, mm-hmm. of a toothed gear. So direct drives, you don't have gears that are machined. You're using uh, electromagnetic, um, you know, you're using magnetism to actually move a system. So you can send various amounts of power to the mount to move it. So that's probably a long-winded reason, but um, even the one meter, the one meter is same thing, very precise, just as uh, same exact tracking accuracy as the L350 because of the encoders on, on each axis. Well, the same guy who has an unpronounceable handle, you, you, you may have an unpronounceable handle, but you do have good questions. So I will ask this one. <laughs> He's asking, can you ask the mix of installs between government, military, university, and private? Is there a sense of, is it an even mix? Do you do more of one kind than another? Uh, let's see. I mean, those are our three main markets, so it's... I don't want to, I guess I'd split them into thirds, right? I mean, it's... So about equal. It's all of them kind of share equal load. Um, and even government defense, they don't... Government defense don't just buy one meters. They buy a lot of smaller systems and optical tubes and mounts because of the, the direct drive capabilities for tracking satellites. So they'll even buy a lot of L350s, uh, the mounts, just to track satellites, which is cool. So... But uh, it's definitely a, an even mix. And that's what you need to do as a business is diversify. Because if we were set up on on d- defense, um, you know, what happens when government contracts don't come in or, you know, they furlough? You know, so you're definitely running into issues with that. We see the same kind of thing with... Um with the pro services yeah it's like you get and it, it's it's a fairly even mix but it's all over the place with um you know what's coming in and when because each one is seasonal to its own yeah. season you know and so when one lifts up the other kind of usually they're getting their projects going so they get their equipment and now they're on the installs side of it for yeah. a while and, yeah. and they they all kind of balance out through the year yeah, exactly. Uh, as a follow-up, Uncle Bill's going, I understand optical encoding, not unlike our optical mice, but getting that kind of resolution between motor poles, maybe with massive power usage. So I was wondering the same thing. That's why I kept saying stepper motors. I couldn't think of yeah. how you got from one pole to another. Uh, okay, maybe that's so what... when you say pole, are you talking about like, we're talking about electricity then? Is that yeah. what you mean? Or Yeah, from coils. Okay, okay. So basically, I mean, like I said, if you open up that Oreo, you have the uh, you have a race of uh, magnets on one side, and then you have copper coils on the other side, and that's all sandwiched onto a bearing. And then around that, you will have the optical encoder, the the disc, the actual disc. So the 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 L mounts draw extremely small amounts of power. I mean, you you run it off of one twenty volt, but the wattage that it's actually pulling is is only a few when it's maxing out slews in both axes so they're very efficient um 
motors that we've developed that actually don't have cogging either. So you don't have these um, these typical motor uh, issues, especially for us, because that would ruin the tracking if you did. But the motor tuning is what gives you the, the performance. It's uh, PID, uh, you know, motor tuning is basically that's how you um, yield awesomely low tracking quality with with a with a direct drive motor that our software engineer did uh he taught himself how to do all that it's incredible <laughs> wow yeah you have cool. incredible My, uh... engineers there at plane wave you have the two kevins and they both Yo, are gosh, so yeah. incredible yeah. like so impossibly yeah. good at what they do you know it's both. scary um yeah there are savants i mean kevin iverson is probably the smartest guys i've ever met um and he is so down to earth and able to teach as well. That's difficult to find. Um, you know, he's patient. <laughs> He'll walk you through everything on a whiteboard. And uh, it's he really is um, a, a special employee for sure, uh, you know, for Plane Wave. And we're honored to have him. And same with Kevin Iyatt and the engineering side. I mean, he's he's the one that developed the L-mount. Right. I mean, he right. saw a need yeah. because welding, making a fork mount is so difficult because when you weld metal, it's going to bend. So if you mm -hmm. have, you know, a fork, right. basically, you're going to those things will shift. So aligning the optical tube with that, that's that was the simplest decision to just swap it, go to one L because welding it, you're not going to get this this odd uh, alignment issue between two forks as you would. So and, you know, no meridian flips. So it'll just track all across Zenith, across Meridian. Yeah, I love talking to both of them. And, and you're right. Uh, Iverson is so patient, man. I, when I have the really complicated computer problems, that's who I'll call, like with our observatories. Yeah. Because I feel yeah. like there is no there is no question he can't answer. It's amazing. I've asked him questions he should have had Ugh. zero reason to know the answer to. And he always <laughs> knows. Yeah, he just makes something up and then somehow yeah. he like just figures it out. Yeah. Yeah, we the last installs on before all the travel shut down was it at uh, Modesto Junior College in California, and it was I was the last it was the third install I've done in a week, so it was wrapping it up. And he um, they needed it, it, they had one of the first CDK seven hundreds, and um, it even still had an IRF ninety as the tertiary to rotate the 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 tertiary mirror, which you know is hilarious but a great idea. But <laughs> the um, their computer crashed and they didn't have a backup. So back then, uh, Kevin worked on the system and had to write a custom driver for their dome and all this stuff. And of course, the computer crashed. They didn't back it up. And he was able to, while I was there working on the stuff, he rewrote the camera, the, the driver for the dome and all the stuff just on the fly. And it's, I mean, there's no way I would have been, I would have been just sitting there dead in the water if it wasn't for him. And, um, so it's that speaks to yeah the engineering services side of plane wave that within a few hours uh, very custom um, you know work and assistance can be done if someone needs it. How can people find your work? How can they follow everything you're doing? Yeah, tell us about tell us about your social media presence. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, just at Matt Dieterich. Um, I don't know if you guys need the spelling and all that stuff, but. Uh, I, have, I have your name here on the video part and I'll make yeah. sure to spell it out. Uh, so I'm, I'm very active on, on Instagram and I've been slowly starting to actually make, um, you know, a lot more YouTube videos. So my goal is, uh, to make some videos and help promote, uh, you know, education and outreach so people can go learn how to set up equipment and do astrophotography. So I have a, a laundry list of, uh, how to videos to make for YouTube. So definitely uh, feel free to subscribe if you guys want to follow along. And if there's something specific you want to learn about with editing or with equipment setup, then definitely shoot me a message and, um, I'll add it to the list. But, um, yeah, Instagram and, and YouTube, uh, those are definitely the, the, the ones I'm on the most. And, uh, I'm building a, a new website for uh, my night sky photography workshops. So for people that are interested in traveling to dark sky locations, I'll be leading workshops to Chile, to national parks in the U S um, in other locations to just good dark skies to teach astrophotography and landscape photography. So I'll be putting that uh, new website live within, uh, well, by the end of the month. So uh, that's my photography side that, uh, I just want to educate and teach people and get them passionate about about their own work and share in the outdoors. So a lot of it's, uh, you know, nightscapes and uh, even um, prime focus, all the good telescope imaging stuff. 
Yeah, just the just the night sky experience is worth the ticket. I mean, it is worth mm-hmm. just getting there because some of these skies are unbelievable, especially the ones in Chile. So I highly recommend that for sure. Well, Matt, let's do more together, man. I absolutely love what you're doing. I love the mission even more. So um, any way I can help with that or OPT can help with that, you know we're on board. We're already doing a lot together on the Plane Wave OPT side. Yeah. But uh, what you're doing personally, I think, is very important work, and, and you're doing it very well, man. So thank you for everything you're contributing to the community. It uh, It's very important, and uh, you're doing a wonderful job. No, absolutely. You guys, Thanks, uh, Matt. Yeah, just uh, happy to share it, and you guys as well. You're doing awesome work, and... This is the way we uh, keep the industry moving forward. Yep, exactly. All right. All right, well, we will cut it there. I want to thank you all so much for watching and listening. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson and Matthew Derrick, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.